0: Make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. On today's episode, we have an extra special guest, Dr. Paul Early. Dr. Early has been an addiction medicine physician for 36 years. He treats all types of addictive disorders and specializes in the assessment and treatment of healthcare professionals. He is a distinguished fellow of the American Society of Addiction Medicine, ASAM, and has been on the board of ASAM for over 20 years in several capacities, including being the president. Dr. Early has also received the ASAM Annual Award for outstanding contributions to the growth and vitality of our society, for thoughtful leadership in the field, and for deep understanding of the art and science of addiction medicine, and for expanding the frontiers of the field of addiction medicine and broadening our understanding of the addictive process through research and innovation. Dr. Early is a dynamic speaker and educator. He has trained therapists from all over the world on the topic of addiction and its treatment. He is the author of three books and numerous articles on addiction and its treatment. Today, we are focusing on his book, Recovery Mind Training, A Neuroscientific Approach to Treating Addiction. Paul started working in the field of eating disorders and recognized that among some of them, food addiction was playing a role with these patients as well. We are so excited to talk to him about that. You are in for a treat today as Paul explains how addict brain works and why the cycle of addiction is so hard to break. Why we can't just stop, even though we desperately want to. Pay close attention to his explanation of procedural learning. We hope this not only helps remove the shame and blame of addiction, but also helps you appreciate that this disease resides in our brain and our brain is who we are. It's what allows us to think, breathe, move, speak, and feel. It's our own personal mission control. Because of this, we must do some level of daily work to treat this disease and have a recovery mind in order to keep it in remission. Listen to this episode a few times. There are some serious, powerful takeaways. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. I am your co-host today, along
1: with Clarissa Kennedy. Today, we are talking to Dr. Paul Early. Dr. Early is a addiction medicine physician for 36 years. He specializes in training healthcare professionals and is the current president of the American Society of Addiction Medicine. He has trained therapists across the world using the neurobiological understanding of addiction. He is author of Recovery Mind Training and the Recovery Skills Manual for Recovery Mind Training. The value of his approach for us at the Food Junkies podcast is that he provides a detailed, systematic platform of tools to help us in the field of food addiction and recovery. So, hello, Dr. Early. And I already see that I didn't catch everything that you've done. So, if you want to take it from, give us more of an introduction.
2: Uh, well, first of all, thank you for having me here, Vera and Clarissa. It's a pleasure to be with you. And uh, I don't have much more to say but than that. Just it's been a, a wonderful career of combining uh, my science interest with my treatment interest and my compassion for those who suffer.
1: Well, and you were saying something about food. Uh, You have been working in the area of food, um, eating disorders or something. So tell us more about that because I didn't know that.
2: Oh yeah. So I was originally trained in uh, neurology and developed an interest in uh, psychotherapy and uh, those who suffer from illnesses that are outside the domain of traditional uh, neurological care. And so I started working in a program that treated um, men and women who had anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa. The program over time began changing into folks that had food addiction without those two components of the illness, without the huge weight loss issues or the binging and purging of bulimia nervosa. So I've had, that's how I started. That's how my actual interest in addiction began was working with uh, those that had food addiction and over time um, we also began working with uh, individuals that had simultaneous alcohol or drug issues and I followed that thread if you will into the more traditional addiction uh, field after that.
1: Okay that's really interesting. Um, Okay well so in a nutshell uh, how do you see your approach with addiction medicine either with food addiction or just in general addiction medicine as different from the traditional model of addiction medicine? And is your view representative of ASAM or are you outside of that model as well?
2: Right. So um, recovery mind training has several components to it. Addiction care is not uh, well systematized and recovery mind training is not about treating everything about an individual who is suffering from an addiction disorder. For instance, it doesn't focus on or even have uh, ways of working with uh, improving depression, which often occurs with addiction disorders. But it's a way at getting at that core process of compulsivity, of an inability to see the problem of decoupling what feel like very automatic behaviors of an addiction problem and addressing those things in a systematic way. The thing that makes recovery mind training a little bit different, uh, there's several things. One is that there are ways of looking at the whole spectrum of the addiction phenomenon, parsing out the elements which you see in the individual before you, and focusing on them with systematic interventions that are aimed at those specific problems. For example, some people may have a uh, an eating disorder where they clearly recognize that they are out of control and that they need to do something about it. Where other individuals have a mechanism of kind of hiding it from themselves—that thing we call denial. Mm-hmm. So, if if you don't have the denial component, you don't need to treat it. But if you do have the denial component, then you have. A task at hand, which is often quite difficult to uh, to bring to the fore and help people get past. Okay. So that's the one piece. So the systematic part right. and the interventions are systematic. And then the last part about it, which is somewhat different, is the participant participates in evaluating their own progress simultaneously with the with the therapist or the treatment community that they're in so that they have a better understanding of what is happening to them. One of the biggest problems with addiction care, in my experience, is that um, individuals come into an addiction treatment setting and they're kind of swept into a system and they themselves can't even understand what's happening to them. They just kind of go along with it and hope something changes. I think that's a bad idea. I think a better idea is to help individuals, say, do a self-assessment, and then that self-assessment goes to the therapist that's working with them. They do the simultaneous assessment of each of the little steps of treatment. So everyone's on the same page in understanding what needs to be done, what needs to happen next, and that in turn determines the length of the the, uh, application of this model in helping people get better.
1: So if I if I'm understanding you the the understanding about addiction may be the same as other addiction physicians but what you're offering is a unique systematic model of treatment that even the client can follow along with and certainly be, between therapists we're, they're all speaking the same language the same terminology
2: Correct exactly everyone's talking the same terminology right. everyone every you know everyone kind of it's really clear what the next step is And at the core of it, recovery mind training is, is about, uh, is about learning, uh, how to undo negative behaviors Mm. and in, and in, instead of judging people, uh, instead of saying, um, you have no control over your compulsive binging on food, or you have no control of your alcohol use, instead of going that way, you say, this appears to be a problem. Do you agree? And you know, and if the individual says no, then you have a different kind of problem. But if they say yes, then you systematically walk through that, and people understand their process of doing that. So you have a more of a partnership, and the whole process is about is, is about learning what are called uh, programmatic learn uh, 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 programmatic learning, the this the kind of learning that's in, involved yeah. in riding a bicycle versus knowing factual information which is really useless in the in yeah.
1: we're we're going to get into that a bit more um i so so uh, right from the get-go uh, in your model it seems that you make a real distinction between what you call an addict mind and then a recovery mind and so can you elaborate a little bit on what you mean by addict mind
2: yeah so the addict brain is um is really it's it's Our belief, those of us that helped develop this model, and I was kind of the primary fellow, but we worked together with uh, six or seven therapists to work on this, is that once the the biggest problem with addictions is they literally retrain the brain to think in a different kind of way. And that different kind of thinking is is almost like an autonomous or a, a distinct set of brain circuits that work. To the demise of the individual, and so it, it gets. What, if if an individual accepts that they have an addiction disorder, by the way, you have to get people to that place before they're going to understand addict brain. Mm-hmm. But this addict brain is is the composite of all of the maladaptive, programmed procedural learning that an individual does in the course of an addiction, and and literally, it's my belief that any truly addictive phenomenon involves rewiring of the brain circuits. And so what we have to do is rewire the rewiring, if you will, and, yeah. and help people undo the damage that's caused. And that's the addict brain. And then recovery mind is a set of skills that people learn to return themselves to health to combat this uh, this, this process. The reason I came up with this dichotomy is, for, is because it helps people understand or categorize a particular behavior as self-destructive in a way that's not self-blaming. They can say that that's my addict brain, which keeps on wanting me to expose myself to friends that are using substances or being around food when I'm vulnerable or going to parties where people are drinking when I'm trying not to drink. That's the addict brain part. And the recovery mind would part is to say, okay, if you have that tendency to do that, what do we do next to unwind that?
1: Okay. So, you know, there's a couple of things that come to mind when you, when you, the, the, the language that you use makes me think of term, the terminology that comes from operant conditioning or sort of that psychological. Is that, is that where this comes from?
2: Yeah. Operant conditioning is part of procedural learning. Yeah. And, um, exactly. And Again, procedural learning, just for your listeners, it's really important that human beings are really good at procedural learning as most, actually most animals are as well. And it involves multiple, multiple circuits in the brain. Mm. And once you have a procedural a process, which is acquired by procedural learning, such as um, if you learn how to, well, one of the things I love to do is ski. Uh, I don't ski every day. Uh, unfortunately, because I'm getting older, I don't ski every year. But even though I haven't skied in two years, I can get on skis and I can do a fair job of something I learned because I entrained my body to know what to do. I don't have to sit there and say, now, do I lean to the left? Do I lean to the right? How far back should I be on my skis? How do I walk in these darn things? I get on the skis and my brain literally knows how to do that. That's the part of the brain which is deeply entrained in addictions. Right. That's why it's so hard to undo it.
1: Right. And and I, I, I was going to ask you that later, but you brought it up now. This That sense of the, the how versus the why and that uh, we're working on the how part and forget about the why yeah. uh, and the understanding of why it's, it's about the how. OK, so so the, the other thing I heard is that it sounded almost as if you were saying the addict mind was a mind in like a separate mind in the mind, uh, almost like, I don't know if you know, Bitten uh, Johnson's work where she calls the red dog, the addicts. It's almost like there's an addict within us or a gremlin with something within us. Would you go as far as to say it can look like that?
2: I absolutely would. I think there is an autonomous uh-huh. uh, a part of her. your brain, yeah. which is always the, the human brain is amazingly vast and amazingly complex. And, there there are people, for instance, um, the numbers aren't as large as we used to think, but there are people that literally have multiple personalities within them, for instance. It's a rare phenomenon, but it occurs. And that's, although that might be a, a somewhat sad illness to have to work with, it's a testimony to how complex the brain is. And so much of what we do as humans is unconscious it's beyond our, you know, beyond our access to it. Just like getting on my skis, I don't have to think about how to ski. In a bigger sense, if I had an addiction disorder, I wouldn't have to say to myself, you know, my, it would be an automatic behavior to overdrink, to binge on food, to, to not have an off switch on my eating behavior. That's an, a process which is almost beyond this part of us that we call ourselves. Uh-huh. It is like a red dog, as you say, or it, it, it's very, very similar to that process that there's there's something going on in the head, which is out of our control. And and it really kind of makes sense because no one when you take a look at people with addiction, no one sets out to be so self-destructive right. yet they do. And and it's baffling to the person that's sitting across from you in the therapy session or it's baffling to the person that has it but it makes sense in terms of the fact that a part of their brain is literally has a totally separate agenda.
1: (laughs) Right. So, so I've never thought of it this way, but um, can we actually make a comparison or an analogy that addiction disorder is like a kind of a form of multiple personality, except it's basically two personalities, the, the me, the self, and then this other thing inside that seems to run the show sometimes.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's a, it's an interesting analogy. I wouldn't go quite as to say it's totally parallel for this yeah. reason. Uh, but, but I, but let me kind of expound on that because I don't think I've ever thought about it, but so the difference is the multiplicity that the two places is in the consciousness area and multiple personality disorder, whereas okay. the two places is more in the behavioral area. Okay. Uh, in, yeah. in, in behavioral areas of our brain for addiction. But in the sense that there are two control centers.
1: Yes, you have that term in very there. Very it's a second control center, the addiction. Yeah. Yeah, I exactly. love that term. Very cool. Yeah. Okay. So, So the other thing I. Didn't think about asking you this either, but when you were working in the eating disorder piece, you know, one of the areas that we struggle with uh, in, in uh, food addiction is how to distinguish and, and diagnose the difference between eating disorder and food addiction. And there you were coming from the eating disorder area, realizing, no, there's something here that I want to call food addiction. And so how do you determine the difference? What's your, in, in terms of using this language, <clears throat> this platform?
2: Well, that's a really super question. And I I don't think I have a, I want to be start off by saying, I'm not sure I have the most exquisite way of doing this, but I'll take a stab at it with you. Yeah. I think whether it is, it's often difficult for people to decide if they have an alcohol use disorder or if they are just over drinking because of current stress, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. So
2: the same thing with food addiction, people will come, and say, you know, I'm uh, I, i um, I'm, I'm eating because of stress, because that's the, you know, let's say that's a common reason that people do overeat. So one of the ways I differentiate between the two is when there is a wholehearted, concerted effort on the part of the individual. And I don't mean a half-hearted kind of, yeah, I should probably, you know, every night I binge on this amount, I, I should probably just eat it you know, eat half as much or something like that. Or, you know, um, I, I, I shouldn't go into a binge blackout from, from eating too much, or I shouldn't uh, drink. But, but rather when people say, I have made a decision, a concerted and clear decision that I want to change this behavior. One of the best ways I think of differentiating is when you have that, you have a sense and, and usually the person doesn't have it, but the individual treating them who is an expert in the field can say, yeah, this is, they're really at a place of being serious about this. And if they are able to adapt their behavior for a prolonged period of time, then I say that's a a behavioral problem. It's not a food addiction. But if despite all of their best efforts, they wind up falling into a pit of despair because they cannot control it, then it's an addiction just like it would be with alcohol. If you had an alcohol issue and someone couldn't stop. So when patients came to see me as an outpatient, uh, as a therapist in the field of alcohol addiction, one of the first things I would do is I'd say, well, so what's, what do you want to do about this? And they'd say, I want to stop drinking for a month just to see how it is. Okay. Let's stop drinking for a month. Uh-huh. And, and we sit down and say, that's the contract. And uh, I know this sounds crazy. I'm sure you guys do it, but you say that that means everything, right? No beer or no, you know, no alcohol, no wine, no Jack Daniels on Saturday night. And we kind of drill into it exactly what it is, which is very analogous to the food addiction world, right? Yeah. <laughs> Where people say, I shouldn't do this, but they really have a lot of withholds. So you get all of that written down, and then you continue to see the, the individual asking how it's going. And if, if despite a concerted and honest, genuine effort, the illness is beyond their control, then it's by definition an addiction and and i think that fits for alcohol addiction i think it fits for cocaine addiction i think it fits for narcotic addiction and i think it fits fits for food addiction is okay. that it's it's all about and and there is i believe a difference between an addiction disorder and a bad habit
1: uh huh and and it sounds like you're putting the eating disorder piece in a not so much a bad habit but a behavioral response to something that's not an addiction per se,
2: maybe well, I, previous I, I, trauma or. Yeah. I, I really saw um anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa as, especially bulimia nervosa as, as in my work, I, I saw it as an addiction phenomenon. Now yeah. there's lots of, yes. um, there's lots of psychological and psychodynamic things happening with eating disorders that are mm. anorexia nervosa and bulimia. Absolutely. But the, there's nothing more addictive than the binge purge cycle it's just so similar and 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 uh cuz you 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 know you 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 binge on high caloric foods which activate that uh, reward center in the brain you have a visceral reaction against it you eliminate the food and the elimination creates a second wave of Uh, brain neurochemistry which reinforces the process so it's a deeply addictive phenomenon in my book and anorexia nervosa is is i think very very complicated and often has especially for women has a lot to do with women's roles in society changing and what it means to be a woman and and that sort of a thing so i don't want to ignore all those things but there's nothing more addictive than someone has bulimia as you also if you take a look at the natural history of bulimia nervosa uh young women who are bulimic have a have a 80 per 70 80 probability of developing an alcohol disorder if they drink alcohol uh-huh. but, I mean, these are these are the at at the core of this this is the same illness as i see it
1: yeah i mean would would i be pushing it to uh, to, to say that you um might well I'll say, I'll, we'll speak for ourselves that there's a lot of, there's a lot of misdiagnosis with a uh, eating disorder that it may actually be some sort of addictive disorder.
2: Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Well, yeah. and, and exactly. especially if you take a look at the research, um, how you can activate high levels of dopamine in the mesolimbic dopamine reward system is by taking certain drugs, drinking alcohol, or, or uh, a, a bolus infusion of, of glucose.
1: Exactly. And it's
2: just as potent as uh, alcohol so i mean you know i used to say to my eating disorder patients well you know you're doing the same thing it's just you figured out a way to do it without having to go buy drugs to do it you know that sort of thing right so
1: Okay, so so you're you're acknowledging there's a dis, dis, distinct disorder that's called addiction or or addict brain, and uh, you mentioned something called the incentive salience model. Can you elaborate on that? How does that fit into this?
2: Yeah, there are a couple of different models um, that uh, for addiction disorders in terms of brain neurochemistry, mm-hmm. and the the incentive salience model is basically one where the The uh, use of drugs, it's it's barely been only studied in drugs, creates a creates a positive experience as it does in anyone. But Mm -hmm. some people are very sensitive to that positive experience. Yeah. And so what happens is that reinforcement to reenact it uh, causes them, incentivizes them to repeat it in a way which is more dramatic than people who don't have addiction disorders. And so that's that that's the one model about incentive salience and uh there's lots of research which shows it's it's uh it's very very important. There's another model brought forth by George Koob, who's really a, a, you know one of our stalwart people in the addiction world that talks a lot about the uh avoidance of the negative consequences and driving the addiction so um, the negative consequences tend to uh, to drive the continued use because of the um because of the problem and it, where does the truth lie it's it's um who knows but it's both negative and positive reinforcement in the mesolimbic dopamine reward system stimulate the um the the addictive dr- drive if, if you will and it almost doesn't matter which is the which is the leading uh, the leading culprit, if you will. Um, and it, it may be that both of them are active at the same time in a given individual. Uh, the I, research I, is, is is a little unclear. Yeah.
1: I, I, I would think that it could easily be that it started off with the positive reinforcement, and uh, and then gradually as you become more and more tolerant and dependent, then it then it shifts over to the. Uh, the negative one where you're just using so that you don't have to go through the withdrawal like i think they're both they both work well together yes okay i don't know if this fits but this it, so the idea of your uh you're saying that the more exposure the more um more potent the drug becomes right almost like an allergic response
2: yeah well there is yeah it, it's there's lots of for traditional uh, drug addiction. I don't know if there's good research on food addiction, but for traditional drug and alcohol addiction, there's clear evidence that some people have a genetic proclivity or genetic susceptibility yes, to yes, this yes. problem. And it's probably true for food addictions as well, mm. but it's not as hardwired in that. And and there's even s- some suggestive research that we're beginning to see which genes actually control that that's work from uh the genetic research that comes from iceland actually um, Ah. on because they've they've done so much work with genetics and they've looked at their population and those that develop addiction and don't and found that uh there's certain gene types which uh genetic sequences if you will or genomes that that put place people at a much higher risk of developing addiction disorder and those are ones that not surprisingly have to do with the development of brain functioning especially in the more deeper more primitive areas of the brain so that places one at risk so if you take someone that has a high genetic risk and you have a certain amount of exposure yes it it lights the fire so you need to in the genetic model you uh, you have this genetic risk as if the kindling is already quite dry and quite flammable. And all you have to do is light the match.
1: What what about in a society like today where, um, uh, even if there is no previous kindling, there's no genetic predisposition but th- there is so much exposure. I mean when I was a young uh, kid, I didn't eat the way that young kids eat now and and uh, my my uh, sense of this is that there is so much exposure that we don't even need a genetic predisposition <laughs> We're already building uh, right. uh, gateways all over the place. Would you agree with that?
2: Well I certainly think that that, that what's uh, human homo sapiens, was, uh, you know, designed or evolved in a time of food scarcity. And we don't know how to deal with food excess. And we certainly don't know how to deal with excess of simple carbohydrates. So one could posit that that's at least a, a, a part, could be a huge part of it, um, the possibility that that because we evolved... We, we evolved to seek out high caloric foods because of survival. Yes. And then we go to a culture where there is high, high caloric intensity and in small amounts of foods with taste augmentation. And it's a, you know, Katie, bar the doors. It's a disaster for us. And one would sense that food addiction would be worsened in our society simply by what we're doing in the, uh, you know, the the, the the people that are the plotting against us, if you will, are the people that have figured out better and better ways of making tastier stuff with high caloric loads. That's a, that's a double whammy. You activate the taste buds and at the same time you activate the, the, this mesolimbic reward system with high caloric loading and um, the brain doesn't know how to deal with it. Just like, by the way, the brain still doesn't know how to deal with, opioids, doesn't know how to deal with cocaine. It doesn't know how to deal with methamphetamine. Those things are dangerous for some people. And some people may be more sensitive, but what you do when there's more and more people that are doing it is you definitely <laughs> ensure that everyone that's susceptible gets in trouble.
1: <laughs> but what's your what's your sense, since you brought up all these deadly uh, um, addictions, what's your sense of where food addiction fits in the hierarchy of uh, severity? I mean, you know, opiate addiction is deadly because you could die tomorrow from a fentanyl overdose. Food addiction, my sense is, it's a slower but just as deadly. What's your take on all that?
2: Yeah, I think food addiction is more insidious in my in my mind, and it 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 can also lead to people thinking that it's not as much of a problem as it really is. It's almost like the the, the issues with Opioids are unavoidable because people are overdosing and dying today. So I think it's captured, at least in the States and probably in Canada, um, it's captured everyone's attention because it has an immediacy and the immediacy makes it seem worse. Now, is it worse? Not necessarily because the insidiousness of a slow boil of a food addiction or an alcohol addiction, or a you know, or a tobacco addiction. Kill actually, you know, tobacco kills many more people than you know than alcohol or heroin combined. Yet we don't say we need to make tobacco illegal, um, which would make total sense. I mean, you want to save billions of healthcare dollars, you would just eliminate tobacco. But so I think the insidiousness of it keeps us from seeing its true import.
1: I like the term that you use. It's a slow boil. That's what it is. It's a slow boil. I like that term. Concept of choice. Where does that fit into this? Before we talk about recovery and recovery mind, you're going to hear a lot of people saying, um, you can just choose to stop. So what's your take on that, especially in relation to food?
2: Yeah, so I'm going to use the analogy that that I've already pounded into the ground with you. It would be like saying to putting someone on a bike and say, forget how to ride that bike.
1: Okay. You can't
2: you can't unforget? You can't unforget. You can't forget procedural learning. It is so hardwired in the brain in multiple um, centers, and it's way below consciousness that you can't unlearn it. You have to instead learn, overlay it with separate behaviors that that correct or twist the 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 self destructive behaviors. So choice goes away. That's when we were talking earlier about how do you differentiate between someone that has an addiction and someone that's just say, um, you know, using food because they're lonely. Well, you know, if someone makes a very concerted effort and they can't stop it, that means it is programmed procedurally in what's called procedural learning. And at that moment, choice goes out the window. The only way you correct it is with, Addiction treatment and addiction treatment that's aimed at reprogramming those those deeper uh, those deeper behaviors
1: and that fits right into our next area of talk, which is the recovery mind. Uh, Yeah, you know how what is your platform? How is that different than the? uh, I mean, you mentioned you have a, a whole set of tools. So just give us sort of general what does what does it mean to retrain our brain towards more positive.
2: Well, so the first thing one does to retrain the brain for recovery is to not rely on information.
1: Huh, good. Uh, right, please.
2: You can't talk someone into recovery. You can't teach them about what's going on in their brain and have them go, oh, okay, that's good. I just won't do that. Because you can't not do that. It, it, you know, Procedural learning becomes automatic. So um, my patients say, you know, I knew I wasn't going to. Uh, I knew I wasn't going to drink alcohol. And I went. Um, you know, I was in the the larder or the closet, and I found a bottle of wine. And before I knew it, I had my hand on it, and I was I was putting the corkscrew in in. I poured myself a glass, and then I looked at it and said, "What am I doing?" You know, wow. that's all procedural learning, that is uh, that is replicating a hardwired process and below the level of consciousness. So what do you do? Well, in that simple case, you say you have to get all the alcohol out of the house because if you have the alcohol in the house and you have an alcohol use disorder, you're gonna drink. I mean, it's simple. And that's a very overly simplistic thing, but that's one of the things you do. But in recovery mind training, what you do is overlay a series of behaviors on top of the maladaptive behaviors. And you don't do that by putting people in a classroom and talking to them. All of the skills, pe- recovery skills people learn are done through experiential therapy. Now, it may not be you know, deep psychodrama or what I was trained in is psychomotor, which is a, a, a cousin of psychodrama. It's not necessarily like that. There are a series of procedures. So for instance, the first thing you do in recovery mind training is you get people to, to Look at some of their high risk situations. Well, a high risk situation is um, I'm going to be going to a wedding.
1: That's exactly what I have an alcohol
2: problem. Yeah, I have a food problem. Okay, so let's let's you know this is best done obviously in a group, and 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 you actually role play the whole process of what would happen at the wedding, and say okay, let's you know you have some objects that you just say these, this is food, this is what we're doing here, this is that, or this is alcohol. We're gonna put a glass here, and here's a punch bowl that has, and here's champagne bottles, and you put some bottles on the table. And the therapist has someone in role play as the uh, the individual with a problem, who is who is going to have to go to a, a wedding. And then you have other people act in the wedding. And what happens in, in a wedding? People say, oh, this is so great, have a glass of champagne, and they shove it in his face. Uh-huh. okay. So then you stop and say, what are your choices here? And how am I going to stop this? What am I going to do? Am I going to walk away from the table that has food on it? And am I going to sit in the corner and talk to a good friend of mine who's also going to be at the wedding? Or am I going to say, no, thanks. I already ate. How am I, how, or what am I going to say? I'm, I'm not, I, I don't want anything to drink. I'm fine right now. And then you have them actually say that and do that. And then the other person who's offering it, pushes it harder and harder. And you have to teach people how to do. And when when they go through the process of uh, behaviorally walking through the avoidance, it's totally different than sitting in a therapy room and saying, well, what are you going to do about it? Well, I'm going to go to the wedding and I I won't eat food. Okay, well, how are you not going to eat food? Well, I'm going to do this. I don't believe that works. I think that the really thing works when you move the body and the body walks through the process and the brain engages with the body. And you figure out uh, uh, just things just
1: for our uh, listeners. Um, I think what you're referring to is, is your sort of uh, platform of domains. The domain a to looks like domain F where, um, you know, the first one is you make the template. You, I think you get the systematic approach. No, I'm sorry. Uh, addiction, containment, get rid of the alcohol, get rid of the, whatever it is. Uh, and then, and then there's a recovery skills. And then there's emotional awareness, internal narrative, connective and spirituality, relapse prevention, you have a whole set of tools, which look like it could be a week by week sort of thing.
2: Or or even longer. I mean, I've had patients that they take six weeks to, you know, develop a, a system of containing their illness and, and, okay, that's fine. Even in a, in a, a, even in a residential setting. So again, that's, you, you move people at the rate at which they, they can do that. Uh And some people will take this like a fish to water and other people will say, well, I I, I'm here, aren't I? So I'm, I think I'm going to be just fine. I just, I just had to show up in your therapy office or I had to show up at your treatment center and and that's enough, isn't it? Well, no, no, (laughs) no. Unfortunately, I'm sorry to tell you that's not. And so that's the other cool thing about it is it is it is each person moves at their own pace. Right. But it's and some very, people. Yeah,
1: it's very systematic. And it's like you go from one to the other to the other. And it sounds like we're doing with a lot of uh, um, procedural learning with each stage.
2: Exactly. And, uh, and it, by the way, just because they're A through F, um, that doesn't mean you go A through F. But it does mean the first F. thing you do is. With an addiction disorder, we were talking about that differentiation. If there is a true addiction disorder, yeah. I think containing the illness, put, putting a fence around it, making sure it's not running, running, wreaking havoc in your life is the first step to do the real rest of the work.
1: Yeah, you know, I was um, going to ask you about that. So, So you wouldn't be somebody that would say, let's work on the trauma first and then you'll be able to stop drinking. That wouldn't be your
2: line. That would not be my line. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't begin to talk about the trauma and validate the trauma and and create a sense of safety using something like Seeking Safety or one of those other methodological tools that will create a, a safe place. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you have someone that has profound trauma, as many people with addictions do you almost have to stabilize them enough in their addiction recovery to have the emotional strength to to kind of work on the, the really powerfully disruptive and agonizing work of recognizing and working through the trauma, whether that's, you know, using EMDR, whether that's um, those sorts of things. So, yeah, I, I don't, I think that you can recognize it. I think jumping in there first, if the addiction is out of control, is just a guarantee that the addiction will get it more out of control.
1: Yeah. Okay. I mean, that, because that's, that's our stand for sure, that we need to seek abstinence first in order for the rest of the platform to work. Is there something in um, your platform that you think, uh, have, have you used this for food addiction per se?
2: I have not. And I would be lovely to try that out. And I can't yeah. wait uh, to work with you guys and figure out how we might adapt it. There are nuances that are going to be obviously different. Uh, One of the difficulties with food addiction is, is, as as you guys know, it it has some qualities which are different. I can say to my patients, I never want you. The the very most obvious one is I can say to my patients, you know, you can't drink any more alcohol, but I can't say to people, you can't drink food. So we have to figure out for each person, that definition of what is healthy, uh, non-addictive eating. And that takes a while to get to that place, and there, and it, it, it's, um, it, it, which, which makes, I think, in many ways, treating food addiction much more difficult than, than alcohol and drug treatment.
1: Right. Yeah. So identifying what are the triggers, basically. Yeah. Okay. Well, do you have any thoughts on um, the concept of harm reduction in the addiction world and how that might apply here? Or what's your thought about it in, in terms of your perspective?
2: Well, harm reduction is what we've done with people with addiction disorders is we blame them and hurt them. And many people are not at a place for many reasons that they that they're ready to to get better. And so harm reduction is in my mind is all about keeping people alive, first of all. And I have no problems with. With, with every attempt to keep people alive, because I never give up on my patients, and if they come to me and say I don't want to do that, I don't. I am not an expert, for instance, in working out uh, harm reduction in a given individual. That's just because I haven't had enough experience with it. But if they come to me and say uh, I want to, I want to um, I, I figure out how I can um, use heroin and not get uh, HIV, not get hepatitis B super, let's get you to a needle exchange. Mm -hmm. That's fine with me. And if you need my services, then I'm here. So just because I don't do that kind of work doesn't mean it's not invaluable. And that's also true with food disorders as well, I think, is that uh, if there's a way you can keep people from getting medically ill while you are helping guide them to self-awareness to go through the stages of change from pre-contemplation to contemplation to action, then you are um, helping people as well. There's nothing, and uh, in, in harm reduction shouldn't be thought of as the, oh, well, you're not willing to do this, so you're not a good person, so I'm gonna do this. That's not true. People are at different stages. However, the, the hard part about harm reduction is to figure out when you have the window to move someone from harm reduction to working on remission of their disease, and and the the only pr- the only thing I have with harm reduction is the only concern I have is is worries that you miss opportunities if people are in that model to intervene on helping people move through the stages of change and say, I, I really am ready to do something about this in okay. terms of remission.
1: The model that you're speaking of is, um, like we kind of identified, behavioral, uh, well, I mean, it's 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 procedural. Where is your take uh, on medication in relation to this? How does that fit into that? Do you... Um,
2: are you talking about medications for, uh, for uh, chemical addictions?
1: Yeah, well, even for uh, food addiction.
2: Or food addiction. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, so I, I have a little bit wider experience with medications. I am perfectly fine with people, uh, especially with opioid use disorder, uh, being on buprenorphine, being on injectable naltrexone, being on methadone. Um, everyone is different. Every patient I've had is different. And there are times where, you know, I, I've not, I'm not a provider of methadone maintenance. So I, if someone comes to me and says, I'm not ready to do that. I won't necessarily accept them at the, accept them blindly at their word. I will encourage considering them, uh, their options a little more, but nonetheless, some people, um, this goes to this issue of remission through uh, medications, whether it's uh, naltrexone, buprenorphine or methadone, it saves lives and people can return to productive lives on those medications and i have no particular you know i'm fine with that as being a way of approaching it it's not what the center of my wheelhouse of what i do uh so i often will say to people let me find someone who's the best uh, in okay. my town to have that okay. done." Your,
1: your model would would could coexist beside it i guess
2: yeah i could coexist with that i i think i would probably the, the i think that the psychological changes that go yeah. that go along with deep addiction recovery, are assisted when, when, if it's an opioid addiction, the opioids aren't in the system. It's a little harder to do to do that on, for instance, buprenorphine maintenance, but that is a type of containment and can be used. And right. I'm fine with it. It's just a little more difficult, just as it would be difficult uh, in, in food addictions as well. If someone was, uh, I think in food addictions, you would constantly be massaging closer and closer to abstinent eating over time and and set the goal without judging your patients if they are not proceeding at the pace that you think they should be at which is difficult right because we want everyone to just grab the, the brass ring and go for it people have to go at their own pace so, then the, the problem again with the other parts of recovery mind training is it often works best in an environment where the disease is fully contained. For instance, if people are or reg, doing regulation of affect, their moods, their feelings through food behaviors, and they're continuing to do that while you're working on emotional intelligence, you're kind of going against, you're going against having uh, the deepest understanding of that because they're busy using their old food tool while you're trying to teach them a second tool around emotional resilience.
1: And and speaking of uh, the tools, another one that you have is connectedness and spirituality. And I really want to make sure we get this question in and that is how does the 12 step program uh, complement or work with your platform? Because
2: the 12 step program is deeply integrated into, into recovery mind training and and that doesn't. There are people that for which twelve step recovery does not work. The advantages of twelve step recovery, in my mind, is that it creates a wholesale reengineering of the individual. It, it's a profound kind of journey that people go through, and and that
1: we call that spiritual awakening. But I like this wholesale engineering. That's perfect. Yeah.
2: yeah well, it, it is spiritual awakening. But people for, for people that are. You know, I I treat a lot of people that are reluctant to, you know, to dive into the spiritual. uh, They don't want to hear that. But I say, well, how about if you just completely felt totally different about yourself? Yeah, I'll go for that. Okay, Uh I got something for you. Uh It's just it's a little I'm just trying to be a little tricky, if you will. Yes, yes. (laughs) With People who find the spiritual awakening part of the 12 steps to be difficult to swallow. So, yeah, it's deeply ingrained in it. And um, some of some of the people, and I use those tools for the very reason that it, it encourages everything one needs. Uh, it encourages self insight. It encourages inventory about one's past. It yeah. c- encourages seeking a higher meaning in your life, and that helps free you from the bondage of the uh, addictive behavior when you're seeking. These are all, these are all
1: your domains, right? That you're yeah. listing right now.
2: Yeah. yeah, exactly.
1: Would it be yeah. fair to say it's like a secular version in a way?
2: Yeah. Although, yeah. Although I, uh, again, in, in the book, uh, in recovery mind training, they're basically they do 12 step work. Um, there are, you know, they work steps, they do all that kind of stuff. And um, I encourage my patients to work steps, find a sponsor, Uh, look for spiritual values, if they have already have a faith to reestablish that faith, and maybe in a subtly nuanced new kind of way, which often happens. So I always encourage that. But the nice thing about it is for people that say, I don't want to do that, doc, I say, we're we're going to work on these other things. Mm -hmm. And we're going to connect you with other people, whether that's rational recovery, whether that's, um, you know, you know, some other type of tool which creates connectedness, which then backdoors its way into spirituality.
1: Okay. Yes. Thank you. That's that's very clever. So you've been around the block here. You've 36 years, I think. You've been in the field of addiction medicine, and yeah. you know, things have changed a lot in the last, especially the last 10 years. Um, how how does your model fit now? Um, are, are, is it something that's becoming more accepted in, the, in ASAM, for example, or or like what's ha- politically, what's happening? What's your take on that? And, and I'm right. asking that just because there, it really the last three years, things have really shifted.
2: Yes, they certainly have. Um, ASAM's, ASAM's agenda with physicians is really to do the best job with what physicians do best in the world of addiction. And we don't physicians are part of a multidisciplinary team. And so what ASAM is dedicated to is doing the right thing in the things that doctors do best in addiction medicine, which would be helping people detoxify, Uh which would be figuring out uh, if medications will help, which would be making a diagnosis of co-occurring conditions, such as depression or bipolar illness or personality issues, which need to be done, especially if they're an addiction psychiatrist. So that's what ASAM is focused on. And then the other piece that we've been doing for many, really that I'm super proud of, is we've been taking something called the ASAM criteria, which is a, a way of structuring intensity of treatment, yeah. And, and defining what those pockets of treatment are, figuring out people, how people move through a continuum so that treatment is not seen as a, you know, for lack of better terms, I'm going to say a 30 day wonder where, you know, you don't go to treatment for 30 days and you're better completely. I mean, you, you might be better, but if you don't do something after you're done with that, you've wasted your time and your money and you'll be back where you started from. Addiction is a chronic condition. It takes, in my experience, it takes almost five years for people to completely extricate themselves from the clutches of all of the crazy unconscious behaviors they used to be. And what happens during that time is, I'm sure you all have all seen as well, is people start recognizing it. What The most common thing I hear my patients at four years is they say, they, 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 and they often say this to me, they'll say, doc, I got a secret for you. What's that? And they said, and lean forward in the session, they say. I was a lot sicker than I thought I was (laughs) as if I'm shocked by that. Right. Uh And, and it's because it takes so long for people to see the truth of how damaged they were, how how destructive the illness was. And that's really super true for food addiction as well. Absolutely. Super true for food addiction as well. And, and and in some ways that's another sneaky part of that food addiction is because Uh If if you're, you know, selling your 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 furniture to buy heroin that your fa- so your family has no furniture at home, it's kind of easy to say this is pretty bad. But if you are if you're just slowly destroying your body and your all of your whole way of dealing one with one
1: amputation at a time, for example.
2: Yeah. It's hard to see that truth because yeah. you hide it from yourself progressively better and better over time. Yeah.
1: So so that actually leads to one uh, one of the last questions that I want to ask you is as addiction physicians I still don't get a sense of thanks to Nora Volkov uh, we 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 have put food addiction or sugar addiction on the map. I mean thanks to her I applaud her and her work. But it, it still doesn't seem to be something that addiction physicians you know, we're we're saying society doesn't take it seriously. It doesn't seem that addiction physicians do either. How can we either through ASAM, through you, now that we have you, or how can we get uh, this to be taken more seriously in the clinical world?
2: I think that there's several things we can keep doing is teaching. Yeah. See, I had an experience that I shared with you earlier. Yes. Because I started the field in this area. It's kind of like I, I was deeply inculcated in understanding that addiction is bigger than just a drug or or an alcohol or a cigarette. It was it's it's a it's a maladaptive and and that's also true for the for the behavioral addiction, such as gambling or sexual compulsivity as well, right? I mean yes. so yeah but that came easy to me and some people physicians are a little concrete at times okay so let's just put it out there and and so um, when you come to them and say that there are two reasons why they might have resistance one is it's it has you're stretching their conceptual boundaries a little bit yeah and two the other thing i learned working in the food addiction world is everyone ha- no one has a normal relationship with food mm and so everyone, when you start challenging that with people, it's, it's a little threatening at times. Yeah. And so, um, so, uh, so I have, uh, you know, if you have some, you know, because everyone has an abnormal relationship with food, it's a little scary. It'd be a little bit like if everyone had, if everyone had, and you know, the people that have totally normal relationships with alcohol, but as if everyone, if everyone yeah. had an abnormal relationship with alcohol, then but, all yeah. the addiction physicians wouldn't see it. Right. Exactly.
1: So there's already an inherent uh, defensive bias. That's there's happening. a
2: defensive bias that's there. Yeah. yeah. So I think I think education is helpful. I think I think to to uh, I think within ASAM um, to keep uh, uh, th- there's an increasing interest today within ASAM about dealing with the behavioral addictions. And I think yeah. um, having educational things within our forum would be helpful because we need to get physicians on board with this. It's a huge problem. I agree. It really it, and it's um, and it's it, it is. Um, and I've even heard physicians say, "Well, I'm not going to worry about that now. I'm just going to try to get them off of alcohol." Well, no, it's all the same thing.
1: Yes, well, and I really if you get like- them off
2: of alcohol. Their food addiction is going to get worse. It's it's a. I like to talk about addiction as being. Uh, is is like playing whack-a-mole, you know, that game of whack-a-mole. You knock down one addiction, the other one pops up. And mm-hmm. we've seen that with behavioral addictions. People become compulsive gamblers when their alcohol dependence goes away and or compulsive sexually or compulsive with food. So if if we start treating addiction as a problem with the human brain, not substances, yes. then we're going to get some traction. And I think we're close to that now, but more work needs to be done. Yeah, um, but- And so that yeah,
1: I I I want to give the floor to uh, Chrissy now. But I just in conclusion, I want to say thank you so much for um, speaking to this. And I I want to you know make an apology to the listeners. Your work is very intricate, and and uh, I, I we really just touched the surface. Uh, really, just saying that I, I guess I can conclude that your your uh, manual is almost like a uh, well secular or systematic uh, way to achieve that spiritual experience through the back door. Um, and uh, But there's much more depth than what, we, what we've we been able to speak to today. So please Thank check you for it out, uh, especially the counselors who are listening, because there's some great tools. And um, I'm so glad to hear the president of ASAM, the American Society of Addiction Medicine, acknowledging that food is uh, part of that whack system. So Chrissy, take it over.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Early. It's been like So fantastic to just listen to this conversation between you and Vera. And we have a signature question and it is, if you could tell a younger version of yourself, something about addiction, what would it be? Wow. Or food addiction or food addiction. You know,
2: I would say that um, everyone during almost everyone during their lives is going to struggle with a behavior, which is potentially lethal
1: everyone everyone sorry i'm interrupting so go
2: into it with your eyes wide open and vera thank you i love the way you you weren't interrupting you were you were kind of mirroring that which was super everyone has a problem of an abnormality around some area of compulsivity that's part of the human experience and i would say to that younger self just know that that's the case so when it shows up you can go oh there it is versus, well, that's, what's wrong with me. What's wrong with me is not the way to approach it. It's, oh, there it is. Okay. Now it's time to start making sure I'm not going to go down the wrong path.
0: Oh, that was a beautiful answer. I loved it. <laughs> Thank Perfect. you so much for joining us today on the Food Junkies podcast.
2: It was great Thank being you. here with both of you. Thank you.